Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Ike Miller. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Ike Miller is the pastor of Bright City Church in North Carolina, a graduate uh, with his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, and he recently published a book with uh, InterVarsity Press called uh, Seeing by the Light, Illumination in Augustine's and Bart's Readings of John. Um, so I was asked to review it for uh, a publication called uh, Modern Reformation, and I thought it would be fun to have him on um, as I thought about reviewing his book. So this is a process that a lot of uh, academics go through where they have their books reviewed, and um, and, and in a lot of cases it's, um, you know, it's to give a sort of summary. Uh, but I thought as a true... Um, sort of demonstration of the task of theology, uh, I thought it would be good to have him on, and that way I could talk with him about some of the questions that, that I had from the book, um, and then he was, he'd was he be allowed to respond and give his sort of take. So um, I, I just thought this was a cool way to think about what it means to review a book and you know think through with an author um, the kind of insights that they're drawing um, uh, from, well, what kind of insights they have to offer. Um, and so... Um, so yeah, so we had this great conversation with uh, Dr. Miller, and I hope that it'll be uh, beneficial for you as you think through some of these uh, things about what does it mean for God to illumine us? What does it mean for, for God to um, teach us? And so Dr. Miller helpfully uh, explains that this is more than just an intellectual thing, that when, when God shines his light on us, um, and that this is more is as much about our aff affections and emotions um, as it is about our sort of understanding intellectually of God. So... Um, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Towards the end, Dr. Miller offers his um, uh, his sort of perspective on some of the even some of the things that are going on in our in our world and in our country with COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement. So um, stick around towards the end, and he will draw on his insights from Augustine and Bart uh, to help think about even those questions. Um, it's also the time of year at the uh, podcast, The History of Christian Theology, where we have to pay for um, a lot of our costs for hosting and other things. Um, so I would ask that you consider donating to our Patreon account, becoming a patron, becoming a supporter. Um, so based on our number of sub subscribers on Facebook and downloads, um, if everybody gave $1, uh, we could we could cover all these costs. So um, I would ask that if, if you uh, think about it, if you would give a dollar, um, um, and and that would just pay you know that would just help us uh, cover our cost um, and and if you want to think about it this way if you give two dollars you're covering one other person um, so one two dollars e even just these little small amount if small amounts if if you guys could give that uh, uh, to us in the patreon uh, that would help cover our costs and everything so we can keep this podcast going so I've got a lot more interviews lined up for this summer um, and for those of you who become uh, patrons I'm gonna start putting a few things up on our Patreon that are only for those people who are supported. So uh, the first one is going to be some of uh, in some insights that, that I'm able to draw from uh, St. Augustine um, and especially about uh, about music and about his time in Milan and then a little bit about the Beatific vision. So some of those things are, are going to be uh, available to our patrons. Um, and for those few, for some of you who are already patrons, you will be, um, you will have access to that stuff. And for those people who are becoming patrons hopefully um, that that you guys uh, will, will have access to that uh, as well so 
Um, so this is my conversation with Dr. Miller. Um, and like I said, please, uh, if, if you can't donate, um, rate us, review us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, maybe share it, uh, share this conversation with some of your friends on Facebook um, and grow the following uh, of the podcast so that it can be offered to more people uh, if you enjoy it. So um, thank you for listening and sorry for this long intro. Here's my conversation with Ike Miller. I wanted to thank uh, Ike Miller for coming on, Dr. Ike Miller, I guess Reverend Doctor, right? Your pastor as well. There you go, that's right. Yep. So, so the Reverend Dr. Uh, Ike Miller, um, and, uh, he wrote a book called Seeing by the Light, Illumination in Augustine's and Bart's Readings of John. Um, and so that's put out by InterVarsity Press, and I was asked to review it for um, a publication called Modern Reformation. Um, and so when my review comes out, uh, they'll link to this podcast, and I'll, I'll link to, uh, to that review um, on our Facebook page and on my Twitter. But um, anyway, so I thought it'd be fun. So I've never, I've never done this specific thing, which is I was asked to, you know, some, something that academics tend to do is review books. And I mm -hmm. thought, Hey, why don't I just reach out to Ike and say, let's yeah. have a conversation. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I thought it'd be fun way to kind of get a little background. So, you know, what historical theologians tend to do is we love a bit of context. Mm. Um <laughs> And so we want to know, you know, what was going on when so, so and such and such a person was writing and mm -hmm. historical currents. And so I feel like it's fun to do that with with authors as well. And so yeah. um, so hopefully this will give us a little perspective on on where Ike is coming from um, in writing this book. Uh, not, you know, that was like I mean, he's doing a, some, you know good academic and theological scholarship and it's not always the place to give like your sort of more of your background so right. we're going to ask some general more general questions maybe um and, and maybe just sort of get a little bit of picture of him and so that i think that to me that makes it easier to read an author mm -hmm. um but um it, yeah. it reminds you, you can respond to that if you like. Yeah, thank you, uh, Chad, so much for inviting me on. It's such an honor to be uh, joining you on the podcast and having this conversation. And just for reaching out, I love sharing, obviously, about the book. But, you know, I think everybody that writes some kind of book, there's something behind that book, something in their personal life that has inspired that. And uh, so the opportunity to get to share that and to share that with others is really always a pleasure. So thanks for inviting me to, to be a part of this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking, um, you know, when I learned a little bit about Calvin's struggle and sort of he, he had some sicknesses and he was a refugee in a certain mm. respect. And it it takes a whole like his theology, which can sometimes seem harsh to people, um, takes yeah. on a whole different um, like tone when right. you understand his his biography, his background. And and I don't mean to say that it's not true just because of this background sure. or you know something like that, but it but at least gives you um, a window into a man that makes them more sympathetic. Um, and if you know, I, I I tend to come from a slightly more reformed side of things. Uh, like I was educated at a reformed school for high school, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't I went to Princeton Seminary. They're not exactly reformed so much anymore, but sure. Sure. <laughs> um, historically they were. That's right, um, but. But, uh, and and then a and a Baptist. I, my parents are Southern Baptist, so okay. I have a little bit of a mixed um, uh, sort of ecclesial background. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's when you know someone's backstory, when you know where they're coming from, it helps put what feels like dry thought into context that fleshes it out and gives it gives it a face, gives it a feeling, gives you a sense of this is why they were saying what they were saying. Um, and, and 
when we are really harsh, we like to dismiss that stuff. But I think when we're empathetic and, and we're charitable in our reading, it, it's always helpful to take that into consideration. So I appreciate that. That's tremendous. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, in a way, that might even lead right into, so I, I sent Ike a couple of questions uh, before we got going, yeah. just so he would know where we were headed. Um, so, I mean, there is a gotcha segment at the end, but uh, <laughs> 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 I don't know if you've seen the show Parks and Rec, but uh, they yeah, have the yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, that, that, that is not my intention. But, there we go. Uh, it would be funny to have the gotcha dancers. There you um, go. Uh, so I, the first question I, I sent out to Ike was, how did he go about choosing uh, the theologians here? So yeah. this book about Augustine and Bart. So where, how did they sort of fit into your... Um, yeah, journey and yeah. So I'll you know this may answer a few of your questions kind of there together, but um, just to kind of share with you the journey of coming to this topic. Uh, I grew up in a Southern Baptist context. Uh, had a great church, a wonderful church family, a, a wonderful youth pastor that helped me in the early stages of discerning a call to ministry, and um, and yet there was this kind of part of that tradition that placed a heavy emphasis on evangelism, and in particular, kind of the process of leading someone to pray a prayer. And so being a young uh, Christian and wanting to do what I understood was right, you know, I dove in and started learning how to do that and what that looked like and um, doing trips to, to do that kind of thing. And, you know, you would lead someone to pray a prayer and they would pray to receive Christ. And uh, it's a powerful moment when someone does that and you see that and you see transformation. Uh, but I also began to see something happen where someone would pray a prayer to receive Christ. And then the next day it was as if it didn't even happen. It's like nothing had ever happened. They had, they hadn't had some encounter with Christ. And if I'm being honest, I began to feel disillusioned with this to the point of if someone's had a genuine encounter with Christ, how can there not be transformation afterwards? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of what sent me on this tailspin of kind of wrestling with that. And the funny part of the story is I went to a Baptist undergrad called Campbell University here in North Carolina. And somehow in the middle of this kind of like crisis that I was having around what is evangelism and conversion, I also found myself the evangelism team leader for Campus Crusade. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was a weird tension that I was living in, you know, of like, I, I'm, I'm not sure like how I think this should happen. And yet here I am supposed to be the person in charge of it. So anyway, I uh, wrestled with that and um, sorry, wrestled with that for a while. And then towards the end of college, my my paradigm of faith began to shift as well. And so I became very interested in questions around the historical Jesus and who was the historical Jesus a, apart from, quote unquote, the bias of faith, right? Like, you know, re remove all of the stuff that keeps people from seeing clearly who was Jesus. Um, and then I knew I wanted to go to seminary and so went off to Duke Divinity School. And it was interesting because... At that time in my faith, I was in a pretty kind of progressive 
place theologically, I would say. And so going to Duke, I just thought Duke was going to affirm all of my quote unquote enlightened ideas, you know, like I thought I had this thing figured out and Duke was just going to agree with it (laughs) Um, because they were this academic institution. And uh, I got there and man, they immediately started pressing back on a lot of my ideas. And that was kind of a wake up call for me of uh, just how I was thinking about things theologically. But at the, but at the heart of a lot of that was this question of how do we know God? And, yeah. and how do we have uh, this encounter with God that's transformational? And uh, so there were a couple of things in there. Uh, Bart became huge for me because his notions around uh, revelation and this encounter with the word of God and how uh, we don't control the word of God. The word of God is always in control over its own knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really resonated yep. with me, this idea of being confronted with the word of God, um, that it wasn't something that I could control. Uh, it, it, it really grabbed me and, and spoke to where I was at at the time. Uh, at the same time, the gospel of John became really important to me because as I read the gospel of John, there were these long narratives of people encountering Christ in John's gospel, unlike the other gospels, like the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John had this proclivity for telling these long narratives of people encountering Christ, like Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the man born blind. And in those, I found kind of my own, questions being answered around what does it mean to encounter Christ? Why are they transformative sometimes and why aren't they? I mean, clearly the encounter with Nicodemus, it was just over his head. It didn't make any sense. He's like, what are you talking about? I have to be born again, you know? Um, And so I found this resonance between Bart and John and John's gospel on some of these questions. And then uh, as I was talking with who then became my advisor, um, Kevin Van Hooser, we were talking about this and he said, you know, it sounds like what you're interested in is that question of like the aha moment. What is the aha moment of faith? And really that question of illumination, the aha of illumination. And so then that led me to Augustine, who was kind of, in a lot of ways, the father of the theory of illumination in the church. Um, Lydia Schumacher wrote a book on divine illumination where she just lays out, here's how Augustine influenced, you know, the history of the church on illumination. And then (laughs) I'm just putting all this together for you, but then I come to find out Augustine has 124 sermons on the gospel of John. And I'm like, okay, this is perfect. Uh, And then finally the, 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 the nail in the coffin, so to speak was Bart had these lectures on John chapter one through eight in German that had never been translated. Yeah. And so it was like, oh my goodness, I have, this is it. I have to write on this. This is, this is where it's coming together. So, so that's kind of a long story, but that's how all the pieces came together for me. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, so, I mean, how, you're, you're German. So yes, yeah, I, I, um, when I got to the BART section, um, you know, my, I have less expertise in BART than in Augustine. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, read, read Augustine or read BART, I should say, uh, a little bit in at Princeton Seminary. And, uh-huh. um, you know, I couldn't graduate without getting my own copy of the dogmatics. There you um, go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, but I have not read through all of it, just uh, yeah. major sections. And, and so, yeah, so I was, I was really struck as I was going through 
through the book at your citations of the Gottingen dogmatics, the church dogmatics, and then the sections of these these untranslated lectures. So uh, just quick question, how, how did you get your German up to speed um, to, yeah. work, to work on that? Man, I'm telling you, it was rough. Uh, you know, the I had some moments in, in the PhD program where I was like, our language is going to be the thing that keeps me from finishing this, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, just, you know, trying to pass the the proficiency exams. But there were a couple of things that were really helpful. Uh, I really, once I knew that I was going to need to translate Bart's German and do it on a level that I could cite reputably, uh, I dove into some of the, the key works that people have recommended to me. I got a uh, tutor that could um, walk with me personally through my translations as I did it, just because I knew it wasn't something that I could just translate and then turn in and be like, Hey, this is, this is reputable without being able to say, I've got some other people that are helping me with this. Um, So I had that in place. And then once I finished, I actually submitted my, my translations to do to two, uh, people who were doing their PhD in German at Duke and asked them to read it and to give me feedback and to help correct anything. And so, so there was a lot of work on my end of trying to learn the German and learn it well enough to translate it. But I also wanted to run it by as many people as possible so that I could say, Hey, this wasn't just my best shot at it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things that you spoke to that, that even I found a kind like a, you know, so like Bart, Bart has a kind of, um, how, how do I say this? Like, uh, you know, sort of, he's dealt with sometimes suspiciously by evangelicals. Sure. Um, <laughs> but the sure. one thing, like when I was required, to, w- w- so when I started in my seminary program, they had us read um, Bart's uh, evangelical theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know, so I, let's, I, I'd finished my undergrad where I did philosophy. Um, I wasn't sure what, what, faith tradition I was, or what part of Christianity, you know, I I had my questions and my, my searchings and things, Mm -hmm. but I loved, I loved his, like you said, that, that encounter. And one thing that, that I'm, you know, as I grow, uh, you know, as I continue to read in, uh, in the tradition, it's just that idea that, that Bart brings out where you're not trying to get behind the text. Um, and, and that's, uh, and you bring that out a little bit in the book as well. Um, but it is, it is the locus for encounter with Mm -hmm. the word of God, right? So this is the place where, you know, God speaks to you and, and maybe even that's, uh, this is not actually on the questions, but, but even that's like one of the things that I was most struck by as I was going through your Bart section was um, the place of the Holy Spirit, which has been one of the knocks on Bart. Like he doesn't yeah. do enough work on the Holy Spirit. And it feels like you do, you know, that's one of your one of your angles in there, one of your real conclusions that um, that is sort of, uh, is pretty novel is like, okay, no, he had a very uh, mm-hmm. robust pneumatology. He thought mm-hmm. about the Spirit and how the Spirit worked and how important that is for this idea of, of encountering God. So it's not just right. that... Um, it's not just that we read the Bible and we pray a prayer, um, but it's the Holy spirit at work in us. And, and Bart recognized that. And it wasn't that you had to get around the text to find something behind it. Um, it was right there in front of you. Yeah. 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 You know, and that was one of the things that I found so interesting was, yeah, you know, there, there was this skepticism about Bart and what he was writing. And, 
Uh, one of the things that I learned at Duke before I even was aware of the skepticism probably from evangelicals about BART was this idea that, and this isn't a knock on evangelicalism, I consider myself broadly an evangelical, but one of the criticisms was that some of the evangelical doctrines of scripture and kind of reasons why it was authoritative were more based in modern mm. criteria for authority, right? Yeah. Um, it sort of, it meets our standard for what historicity is and some of these kinds of things. Whereas Bart was claiming, this is the word of God on the basis of God speaking his revelation to us and the Holy Spirit confirming it in our hearts. And that to me felt like a more theologically grounded notion of authority of scripture than mm. some of what I'd heard. Um, and it was less susceptible to times changing. Like what if our definition of historicity changes? It's changed in the past. Why can't it change again? And now we have to rework our doctrine of authority. Right. Um, and so there were just some things like that, that were really compelling and interesting to me um, that, that helped me to see what Bart was doing. But honestly, you know, the other thing about Bart and his work on the spirit, I think if you read, I think it's four, uh, three, um, the, there's so much in there about the spirit that when I read that, I'm like, how did he, how could you say he didn't write on the spirit? But there's also in one, two, um, church talk Max one, two, there's so much about the spirit in there that I'm like, this could have been his work on the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> like when he's talking about the subjective aspect of revelation, there's so much about the spirit in there because the spirit was a lot of that for him. There was a lot in there that was essentially his doctrine of illumination that I drew on. So I, you know, that doesn't make him impervious to it, but I think there is so much that he does write on the spirit. Well, and, and that, so one thing you brought up in there is, and I don't mean to make you, uh, one of the things that's difficult for me, I guess, is, uh, so when I did undergrad in philosophy, I feel like it was a really helpful thing, um, but but it, it also makes me annoying to anyone that uh, <laughs> hasn't done philosophy, which is I want a definition. Um, yeah. And uh, evangelical is a hard thing to define, and it yeah. has uh, been used and abused and um, uh, in throughout sort of, I, I would say, just like even American journalism, but, sure. um, so that's a pretty broad term, but I was wondering like, so Augustine, Bart, you, you know, Kevin Van Hooser, I'm pretty sure is in the reformed kind of Presbyterian mm -hmm. world. Um, is, yeah. is that, I think I have that right. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and I noticed a couple of, uh, uh, um, sort of citations of Calvin, um, mm -hmm. at least as, as Bart was citing him as well. Um, but, um, so yeah. do you consider yourself broadly within that that reformed kind of theological tradition or they just ha so do they just happen to have some good thinkers? <laughs> um, so it's like, well, I may not be one of them, but hey, I yeah. need to at least deal with them. Yeah, no, that's a good question. You know, I, I grew up Baptist, uh, went to a Baptist undergrad. I went to a Methodist seminary. Uh, Trinity is, you know, free church. Um, Bart obviously is in the a, a different kind of reform tradition, so to speak. Yep. Um, and so, you know, to answer the question, what I consider, I, you know, I consider myself broadly reformed in the sense that, you know, the sovereignty of God is what underlays everything else. Um, you know, where I fall in the five points of Calvinism, you know, I, it's not, if I'm being completely honest with you, and maybe this is being a lazy theologian, I'm not super interested in the conversation. Um, sure. sure. Um, but, 
so I think for me, what I've tried to do, especially for the generation of theologians that I think are coming up, is trying to engage the questions that they're really interested in. And yeah. it feels like in a lot of ways, they're not so much interested in some of those questions as they are. How do we find our way forward in a less um, strict where do you fall along this line kind of conversation? And instead, how do we recover and retrieve the great things of our tradition and move forward with what I think Bart would say was, was apologetics, which is the beauty of our theology. Yeah. Like what, what's the, our, our best apology is going to be the beauty of our theology. And that's what, that's honestly what I'm going after. So I don't mean to evade the question, but no, no, I no. think what I'm trying to do is draw the best of what we are. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, I actually wasn't necessarily meaning Tulip and, and Dutch Reformed. Sure, sure, sure. I was just sort of curious because these are, you know, important. And I, I was listening to a podcast, um, what is it, On Being, um, and, and I heard uh, a guy on there, uh, I think he was talking about Robert Jensen, actually, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and um, now the other, the I don't know, the, some of the other names are escaping me. But, but he made this point that really stuck with me, which was, um, there's only so much time uh, that a person has <laughs> on earth um, and only so much that you can possibly read. And sometimes you just end up conversing with the people who've been presented before you. Um, right. and, and so, and, and that's a little bit, I mean, not, this isn't about me, but that's a little bit about how I feel about myself within the sort of broadly reformed tradition. It's not that I have some grand like defense of Protestant scholasticism in, yeah. in the yeah. Netherlands in the 18th century. Um <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah. but it, you know, which has come to dominate uh, a lot of uh, neo-Calvinism. But, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's just that, like, hey, these are the people that have represented to me, um, yeah. and and there's a lot of um, good there. And I mean, you know, so I think I, I think that my kind of even my own sort of place is very very similar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was, so let's, let's, uh, take a step back a little bit. Um, so uh, like thinking about your own sort of work as a pastor, so you're, you and your wife founded Bright City Church, is that correct? Uh Um, and so like, okay, so this is a more, (laughs) definitely a more academic work. Um, so you're going deep into Bard and pneumatology and his German and all of this and and Augustine, uh, deep into the tradition, but how does that, how does that shape your own work as a, as a pastor? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a good question yeah you're like how did you end up you planted a church but also wrote a an academic book what, what what's going on in your world um yeah, it's great i i you know, totally support just to, yeah yeah so you know when i uh you know i would say i first felt some sense of a call to ministry when i was in high school and you know at the time thought okay this is to youth ministry and so when i was an undergrad i did youth ministry for a little while and but I remember when I was in seminary, I sat down with a, uh, he was a PhD candidate at the time. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm really wrestling with what, what's next for me, what I'm supposed to do. I said, do you know of any schools or is it even still a thing where people will go and they'll study for a PhD, but their one of their primary purposes in that is the, to then leverage that for the church and to uh-huh. teach within the context of the church. And their response was, it's rare, but yeah, it's still done. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, those kind of conversations for me, I've just, I've 
for a long time felt this tearing between, okay, am I supposed to be in academia? Am I supposed to be in the church? And had that conversation with a lot of people. And eventually I just kind of reached this point where I had to say, okay, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if I'm supposed to be in this world or that world, but I'm able to step into both worlds. And so I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to, I'm going to see where that takes me and see where that leads me. And so that first step then for me was to, to pursue a PhD program and went to Trinity and studied there. And, uh, I just being very transparent with you, as I got towards the end of the PhD program and started looking into the job application process and applying for jobs, I, I didn't really enjoy that. I didn't yeah. enjoy the the not not so much the networking, but the piece of like, let me try to prove to you that I'm smart enough for you to listen to me right now, piece. You know? yeah. um, and so I was like, maybe this is something I've just got to push through. But then I began to feel, well, let's look at the church. Let's see what kind of conversations happen in the church. And so I started having conversations with pastors and looking at positions. And man, I just loved it. It felt natural. It felt like this is where I was supposed to be. And so I just leaned into that. And so I, while I was finishing up my dissertation, I took a job working at a church. I was a young adults pastor at a church here in North Carolina and just kind of lived in those two worlds of writing my dissertation and, you know, pastoring young adults. And uh, when I finished my PhD, there was this switch in me that took place of like, okay, now it's time to start thinking about what's next. And I still felt like the church was that world, but I still love the academics and I love studying and I love love reading. And, and, and honestly, it's a good balance for me. Like I, I knew that I couldn't solely be in academia because I needed to be connecting with people. I needed to be pastoring people. I needed to be shepherding people. And I know lots of professors that do that, but I knew that I needed to be in the church for that. But I also knew that I enjoyed the intellectual engagement enough that I needed to be able to engage in that level. And so, um, as we continue to pursue what was next, uh, I won't go into the whole story, but God just made it very clear, kind of one of those like middle of the night, wake you up. Hey, I want you to go to plant a church kind of thing where you're like, I wish I was asleep right now. Like, <laughs> um, and uh, so we, we just started pursuing that. And my my approach has always been like, let's just push forward in all directions until doors close or something says no, or God just says clearly like, hey, this is where I want you to go. And so that's, that's just kind of been my journey and my process. And so the world that I feel like, or the space that I feel like I'm, I'm meant to inhabit at least right now is to stand in this place of kind of translating academia to the church and maybe speaking from the church into academia in any way that, that helps those worlds to stay connected and, and contributing to each other. So, well, and, um, it's, you know, it, it, it's funny as I listen to you, I, uh, we, we have actually quite a bit in common. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's pretty funny. Cause, uh, yeah, I mean, I like, you know, grew up in a Southern Baptist church and, and felt a, a sort of call to ministry. Now it was funny. My parents always told me, they were like, I think you need to be a teacher, uh, but uh -huh. we're happy. We're happy wherever you feel God has called you, but we'll, we'll just throw out there that we think you're uh, more a teacher. So, uh, so when I was in, uh, my PhD program, I, I was actually teaching at an elementary school. 
Um, and it was, it was an interesting and helpful balance, um, mm. actually, uh, to go and hang out with kids and sing songs in Latin and, you know, do other things, uh, that weren't uh, so tied to my academic work, but mm. be that as it may, um, one of the things that I, one of the questions I sent you is one of the things that I thought a lot about as a kid, uh, was there was this kind of anti-intellectualism I felt mm. like. Um, in, in my church, like where people were, you know, I mean, I remember my, my mom used to get prayer requests for their atheist son, Chad, um, <laughs> and, um, because I was studying philosophy as an undergrad and they were, you know, and the, but they were like, they were worried that if I, if I studied too much or if I studied, you know, like evangelicals don't tend to have a good, like thought, uh, like, um, I don't know, sort of apologetic or a good, um, understanding of, uh, where even the Bible comes from. It was like, okay, don't, don't ask that question because we don't have a great answer for you. Mm -hmm. Um, or, um, you know, in philosophy and these sorts of things. So, so the question I said was sometimes the church can be could the sort of American evangelical church broadly considered can be described as anti-intellectual. And mm -hmm. so how do you feel like it, you know, how is it that, um, I guess how is your um, emphasis received even in the church? Like, so it sounds you must have a more um, slightly more uh, intellectual um, mindset, and is that is that a difficult place to be in? Um, I guess. Yeah, are you referring to kind of what I was brought up in, or where I'm at now? Well, let's say specifically where you're at now, though. Yeah. Like, I mean, how how is it that you're able to bring your passion and dedication to um, to theology and 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 that sort of thing? How are you able to bring that into your church now? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so when we were when we had decided, okay, seriously, God is calling us to plant a church. We should probably do this. Um, we started kind of having conversations of, okay, you know, we need somebody to teach us how to do this because we don't know how to plant a church, and this is new to us. And um, but before that, as I interviewed at places, people kind of were skeptical of my education and kind of felt like you're going to be difficult to connect with. I'm afraid you're going to be too academic and not relational enough. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was a part of me that thought, man, is this a disadvantage? And when we started with um, we planted with an organization called ARC, Association of Related Churches, some of your listeners may be familiar with them. Um, but that was one of the questions I brought to them was, how do you feel about you know, who I am in my education. And they said, you know what, we want you to be who you are and mm -hmm. we don't want you to change. We don't want you to, to be anything other than who you are. And one of the beautiful things about where God very clearly called us to plant a church is we're right here in the Raleigh Durham area. Uh, the area we're near is called the research triangle. And so you've got, um, Duke, uh, NC State, UNC that are right here. And so it's a very intellectually minded community uh, with, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, it's one of the highest PhD per capita areas in the country. Wow. And, and so there was just kind of, as we stepped back and look at that, we were like, man, God, obviously you knew what you were doing, but clearly we fit the people that you've called us to. And they are interested in the kind of conversations that we are interested in. And so for me, you know, uh, it, it just felt natural in a lot of ways that this is exactly where we're supposed to be. Now, I realize that there's a lot of people in our church that aren't on that level, aren't interested in that level of conversation. And so my goal is to the way that I've put it a lot is to be both um, thoughtful, but also accessible. 
And mm-hmm. so how do I take a deep truth or a challenging thought and make that accessible to everybody in the room? And honestly, I think that's the important thing. I don't think it's that we're being too lofty or too deep in our teaching. It's are you doing the work of making it accessible for people? Because that's where I think people get lost. So that's my that's my goal is to make it accessible regardless of how deep it is. Yeah. All right. I'm going to change gears. Just uh, it's going to be a fast change here. All right. So I, I, I love this question just because I, I just recently came across it. So the next thing I want to work on, uh, the next thing I want to work on a little bit is Calvin um, and his reception of the church fathers. Yeah. Uh, and so he, so I'm reading through what he said. So, and then your book actually made me look at this. I was like, oh, okay. So how does Calvin fit um, in, in this kind of conversation? Right. So he's somewhere in, in between Bart and Augustine on John and right mm-hmm. there. And it's first, thing on uh on 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 john one he says well if you read augustine on this he's obsessively concerned with platonism Uh, (laughs) so we've talked about bart we've talked about you know getting behind the text and christ present in the text so how do you go about reading augustine like is this do you do you how do you handle some of his greek platonic emphasis is that something you have to like say okay well we hold that at arm's length which is basically calvin's perspective it's fascinating how much he rejects augustine in his commentaries on scripture yeah Um, yeah, but. exactly. No, it's a great question. It's a fair question. It's one that I definitely wanted to address in this conversation because you're right. There is, uh, I mean, with John one in particular, there's a tendency to want to let's let's see what how this relates to Plato. Um, there's there's a couple of things that I'll say though. On one level, and this is a bit of an exaggeration, but I think a bit of it is to say, man, to criticize. Augustine for obsessing with plate um, on, with Platonism is kind of to criticize humans for being obsessed with oxygen. Like it's just <laughs> the air you breathe. Right. And yeah. it was just the air that, that Augustine breathed. And so when he saw some of the language of John one, it was natural for his response to be, this is connected to Platonism and how does this connect to Platonism? Um, but at the same time, as I did some digging in this, um, there's a guy named um, Gilson who wrote, he's, French, but wrote a book on the introduction to the study of St. Augustine. And um, he said these words, I'm just going to read, but he said that Augustine formulated his doctrine of illumination through merging a philosophical metaphor with the text of scripture. Mm. In this metaphor, light is figurative for God, eyes are for the soul, and sight is the soul's reception of truth. Um, And so there is this metaphor, I think, that, that Augustine sees that is connected to kind of the platonic notions of God and uh, the forms and knowledge and those kinds of things. Um, But what Gilson um, goes on to say is that Augustine only accepts tenets of Platonism and Platonist doctrines because of their harmony with scripture. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, like all of us, to some degree, we can't avoid what's been informing our thinking. I mean, Bart's still engaged in Hegelian thought at times, you know, and some of that's just because, like you said, that's what was presented to him. That's what informed his thought. But what I appreciated about what some of the people writing on Augustine and Platonism was uh, Augustine still prioritized scripture and used Platonism insofar as it um was in harmony with scripture. And so he didn't do that perfectly. I think none of us do that, do that perfectly, but I think at least being aware of that and, and 
um, being sensitive to that was important. So, um, yeah, I don't think he did it perfectly, but I would, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he was obsessed with Platonism and couldn't see past it. Like Calvin <laughs> said. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it, like I said, it's, it's mostly just one of those like great phrases that you just like yeah. by accident turn up. Um, yep. and, and I was like, Oh man, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it was a tool for Augustine, a tool that yeah. he used. I mean, I talk about the metaphor of the cave and how, uh, Plato aside, that's a beautiful metaphor for someone experiencing illumination, you yeah. know, of coming out of the darkness of the cave where there's been forms projected onto a wall and you thought that was reality. Like you thought that was truth. But man, when you're dragged out into the light of day and you see light as it truly is, man, then you see how dark and how false what you thought truth was. And so so to be able to use that tool, I think, is 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 what Augustine was after. Yeah. Oh, and I I just liked it as a funny kind of criticism. I, I mean, <laughs> personally, I enjoy reading my Plato, um, and yeah, it's yeah. it's just it's I just kind of like it because it's one of those sort of like funny one liners. Um, yeah. it's sort of like um, whenever I uh, my well, so the other guys on my podcast they really like Aristotle probably more than Plato, and uh-huh. and one of their favorite quotes is Aristotle, or at least attributed to Aristotle. Um, I uh, who said I love Plato, but I love the truth more. Uh, <laughs> and. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's just like one of those great burns. Like you just That's can't, right. you know, yeah. uh, ignore it. You gotta put it in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and one, it was, so, uh, one of the things I also like to do, I love, so I, uh, I'm an auditory learner in addition to, um, reading and writing. So, uh, ba- Bart actually says something fairly similar. Um, he came to Princeton seminary in the fifties mm-hmm. and, and they recorded it. Um, mm-hmm. and he actually sort of, uh, castigates himself um, for <laughs> as being when he was too young, being too concerned with Platonism, um, mm. and uh, and it's it is it's this fascinating sort of part of the Christian tradition. Um, yeah. that I, I I don't know if it's the homoousios, the mm. you know our the way that the Nicene Creed choose, chose to you know the Greek word that they chose to use to talk about the same substance of God the Father and God the Son, um, yeah. but it just seems like it's hard to escape that. Um, that part of Greek philosophy and Platonic philosophy, that was the water in which uh, the, the, the scripture came. Um, I had another guy on um, the podcast, Vince Bantu, who, who just wrote a book um, about called the multitude of all peoples also published mm-hmm. with uh, InterVarsity. And mm-hmm. part of his work um, was to sort of see other um uh, other sort of philosophical or cultural lenses, which to bring the gospel, especially in Africa um, mm. and Asia. And he's a, he, you know, he's a very careful um, historical theologian and mm-hmm. um, uh, trained at uh, Catholic university. But anyway, so I, I suggest uh, going to listen to that podcast, but he yeah. talked a lot about um, other ways in which like, it doesn't have to be that the gospel is intimately connected with um, Greek philosophy. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, one of the things that I was concerned about, too, was, you know, there's this kind of move in academia to speak about the Hellenization of the early church. And so some of it was to say, hey, that's not exactly what's going on here as well. Let me clarify a little bit of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Um, we got, uh, let's see, we've been going for 40-ish minutes. Um, I was trying to decide if I was going to ask you, I, I had one other question on on Augustine that may be, uh, may be very particular. Um, 
and I didn't write it to you because um, I, I wasn't sure uh, if is that this was, the gotcha is that is that what this is? <laughs> yeah. No, well, it's it was just it was just something that was like you, you wrote in a footnote about um, the ecclesial nature of let's see, it's on page the the ecclesial reality for Augustine. Like you were talking about some different realities, and it was just sort of it was sort of interesting. I was like, all right, do I bring this up on the podcast or not? Um, I was just sort of curious why you you know you felt like maybe I want to talk about it, but maybe not. So I'll put it in the footnote mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. um and it was sort of the and, and the only, i think the reason that it stuck out to me was uh well for one my my advisor was very like that's one of his big emphasis uh in his in his book on augustine uh mm-hmm. so anyway just curious like you know what what role let's all so i'll ask the question this okay. way yeah. um <laughs> what is the importance of the church itself and like so being in a church um, for reading scripture, for understanding illumination, how does the church fit um, in our coming to a knowledge of God? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, are you referring to kind of where um, speaking about um, how illumination was a part of um, there was an ecclesiological grounding for illumination in Augustine? Is that yeah, so like uh, I think the 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 footnote says specifically a debatable fifth statement could be made is that this participation is an ecclesial reality for Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, so the participation and illumination is an right, ecclesial right. reality. Um, and and so like I said, that was sort of what I was thinking of, but not not okay, not yeah. trying to put you on the spot about that. But let's just so the the real the big question question that made me ask is how does the church fit in? Yeah, so you know, kind of one of the things that I was going after there, and the reason it's in a footnote is originally it was a part of the main conversation um, where I was taking some time to. Um, clarify maybe where there's some points of disagreement either between Augustine and Bart or between kind of what I'm trying to say and what Augustine was trying or yeah what Augustine was trying to say and one of the places where that I didn't know about until I started reading this I wasn't even aware of but in the early church illumination was associated with baptism Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating to me that there was this connection between baptism and illumination. Um, And so a part of the early conversation, earlier kind of um, parts, um, editions of the book was me kind of communicating that I don't think illumination is dependent upon, um, say, participation in it doesn't happen in the moment of baptism necessarily. It doesn't happen in the moment of taking communion um, so that it's not this uh, mechanical, Hey, I do this and therefore I experience this. So that's all that I was trying to communicate with that. Um, But to kind of the point of what you're asking is what place does the church play? I think the church plays a huge part, especially when it comes to theological interpretation and the moment of illumination or experience of illumination in that uh, we learn scripture by listening to the church read it and teach it you mm-hmm. know that that's that that is an integral part to it and so for me to go in my closet and read scripture by myself i'm missing out on a bit of what god is trying to teach me through the scripture simply because i'm reading it apart from the community of the saints yeah. um, and so for me you know um dan trier and his stuff on theological interpretation of scripture talks about the church uh the creeds being this essential part of helping us to read scripture well. And so that's the part that it plays for me is uh, that it's not an echo chamber that I'm reading this in, but I'm reading this along with other people and God speaks through others to teach me his word. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's great. I, I was I should have probably prefaced even the question with um, if this is too uh, uh, gotcha, I can uh, excise. <laughs> uh, no, no, it was I made that joke about gotcha, actually not thinking about even this question. It was just it was sort of just a yeah, I hope sure. that was not like you didn't feel uh, attacked. No, not at all. Not at all, man. You're totally good. You're totally good. Okay. I hope it was sufficient. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was just, you know, like I say, it just, it, well, and it's it's an interesting part of sort of the broader evangelical project is, is we tend to be atomized. That's um, right. We tend to be individualistic. And um, I'll, you know, another great, one of those great one-liners that always sticks, sticks in my head is B.B. Warfield says uh, that the Reformation is Augustine's doctrine of grace t- triumphing over his doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, another another sort of project I have broadly in the back of my mind is to write a little bit on Warfield's mm-hmm. uh, on that statement of Warfield and what that mean, what that has meant basically for the church in his wake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so, um, you know, because I think we do have a tendency to think we can do it on our own. We can mm-hmm. read on our own. You talked about the echo chamber, um, mm-hmm. but um, and and this is a hard problem because you know Roman Catholic. Uh, uh, readings of Augustine have such a robust way of viewing, like you just said, the place of the sacraments for provi- directly providing this illumination. Yeah. Sort of the, uh, the the Latin phrase that comes out later, which is, is attributed to Augustine, but didn't actually say ex opere operato. Um, right. That is, you know, it, it and so it, it is by just by the virtue of the work, um, not mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah. Um, and so there, you know. Um, Anyway, so that's that's one of these hard things that that the American church has to sort of um, yeah. American evangelical church has to deal with. Um, well, and-, and it's it's too. I, I, I'll be honest. Like I think some of it is probably, and this isn't a knock on Baptist, but some of it's probably my own Baptist baggage, right? Of yeah. like, you know, I whenever these conversations come up around, you know, well, what happens in in communion or taking Eucharist? What happens in baptism is. I want to say, yes, the spirit works and there's something unique that happens in that, but also it's not a mechanism. You know, it's not a this, therefore that. And I I haven't resolved that tension in myself, to be honest with you. I think I'm still figuring that out. But um, there's kind of that own like wrestling with my own history of theology. Oh, that's great. I mean, you know, myself included, I spent some time in an an Episcopalian and and Anglican kind of context. Mm -hmm. uh, And you know, I, I sort of liked the, the via media kind of thinking mm-hmm. like, we know this is important, but we're not actually going to make some statement that's like incontrovertible about it. Like we're not going right. to affirm transubstantiation explicitly or, yeah. you know, these sorts of things. Um, yeah. but, uh, but it was certainly important there. Um, although, uh, I don't, I don't find myself going to an Episcopalian church anymore, but, but for a yeah. little while, uh, that was, that was where I thought I was, uh, I belonged. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear from you, not to turn the, the conversation around, but I, I, you know, as someone who spent a long time studying Augustine's sermons, um, yeah, I'd love to hear just a little bit of what that's been like for you and what resonance you felt with what I wrote. Any um, Anything that you felt like I wrote that you're like, yeah, I don't know about that. I, I'd, I'd love to hear that too. I'm open to hearing that too. <laughs> Uh, I mean, well, I mean, so like I said, I f- so one of the things that, um, again, wanting you to come on the podcast um, was was like I said, this is my way of saying like, um, I, you know, I, I, I prefer face to face. I prefer conversation. I yeah. prefer being able to look someone in the eye and say, you know, th- this is, you know, this is what I see because I'm, I'm always way more charitable. Um, if I know someone. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah. So, and, and, and I mean, I think, you know, when I first, like, 
it, it just came across my desk and I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. Um, let's see, you know, so I, so I will say straight, uh, like, uh, um, outright, like I didn't, my, my, uh, specific research wasn't on, um, Augustine's use of, um, uh, or August, Augustine's um, tractates on John. Yeah. Um, I was looking at another collection, which is called the Sermons to the People. Um, and so it, you know, it turns out that uh, that Augustine wrote way more in terms of his sermons than he ever wrote. Even you know, like the, oh, yeah. the commentaries on the Psalms is actually larger than the City of God, uh, wow. quite a, quite a bit larger. So anyway, so Augustine preached a ton. Yeah. Um, and so if you focus on the tractates on John, you know, you're focusing on a ton of stuff. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I. I <laughs> This is in no, you know, but no, like, I'm not trying to like fault you. Like, I mean, that's, that's even one of the difficulties when I look at this, I, I can remember even my, uh, my advisor saying, I, I think I wanted to compare Augustine to, um, I translated some stuff from Peter Chrysologus, um, uh-huh. and, and I was like wanting to do some comparison or something in their preaching styles mm-hmm. or, um, and my, my, my advisor just said, you know, do Augustine, do one person, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's like, cause you won't get through that. And I actually, another one of the people in my department, um, tried very hard to get me not to do Augustine and kept telling me, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, too many people have done that. Um, and so I was like, but this is what I want to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah. This is what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was really happy that McConey encouraged me on that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I hadn't thought about, you used three different phrases, like historical, uh, historical, rhetorical, and soteriological. Um, those were the two different kind of, uh, there's a second line there that I'm missing. Yeah, um, so there was the literal historical, the um, salvation historical, and the rhetorical historical as my kind of framework for his, what he was doing uh, in his preaching and exegesis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my the salvation historical one made me think a lot of um, the um, salvation history as a term in in sort of theolo- uh, German theological um, mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. So it you know that was and and I never thought about the rhetorical historical, but I definitely think the litor- like I think the 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 divides in a sense are are helpful. Um, so I, I appreciated it as a way of framing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, cause that it is actually one of the things that fascinates me most about Augustine is when you talk about the broader, um, ideas of patristic exegesis, we tend to, you, and you brought this out very well, um, it, which is, uh, people tend to argue that there is like Alexandrian and mm-hmm. Antiochian, um, exegesis. And really the truth is, even if I, I don't think that those are actually in the end that helpful, um, right, right even if you thought they were helpful, Augustine mm. kind of straddles them. Um, Absolutely. And, yep. and so, uh, you know, so, or, so just taking the heuristics for what they are, neither one of them directly applies to Augustine. Yep. Um, so I think what you br- brought out in those three different levels was, was helpful um, mm. just to sort of say like, I mean, this is what makes him kind of interesting. He is concerned with literal in a way that origin um, couldn't have countenanced. Um, mm-hmm. But, but he is also directly concerned with, and that's what that's what makes him powerful as a preacher to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I talked a lot about um, his speaking to the poor um, specifically mm-hmm. um, in the sermons because sometimes it's stated that Augustine's um, 
um, audience was just the wealthy elite. Mm. Um, and that basically the, the contention is, is that um, nobody who was poor would have even understood him. And, mm. and so my, my work was a lot of looking at the specific quality of his Latin um, and trying to show how he was speaking to a broad swath of people. Um, yeah. And um, uh, Peter Brown says he has uh, a simplicity um, understood at the far side of eloquence. Um, mm. and, and so it's, it's sort of this great way to capture like he is simple, um, but it's not the simple language of the farmer or fisherman, but it is still. Un- and, and then this is not actually what Peter uh, Brown even thinks, but it's what I think. It's that I think that they could understand it, too, though. Right. Um, and, and like Augustine, Augustine does this like really fascinating thing where at, on the one hand, he wants to speak to the most educated. Um, and on the other hand, he wants to speak to, um, like I say, the farmer and the fisherman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, that's kind of what 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 I did with uh, with my um a lot of my work, but, but yeah, so I I like those kind of different emphases. Yeah. And what I was doing with, you know, some of it was just trying to be clever, honestly, you know, the literal historical, the salvation historical and the rhetorical historical, but you know, what I was trying to do was to bring some coherence to his method. Um, You know, a lot of people wanted to say that they couldn't accept Augustine's interpretation because it was too allegorical or it wasn't rooted in the literal meaning of the text. And what I was trying to communicate was that uh, you've got to take into account what he's trying to do in that particular passage. So for example, one of my favorite things that Augustine does is in John chapter four with the the story of the woman at the well is he talks about how, um, the reference to Jesus and it being the third hour is a reference to this, the time of Jesus's coming as the third kind of era in history, right. Yeah. Of like the fall uh, or creation, the fall, and then Jesus coming as the third kind of act, so to speak. And so people want to take that and be like, that's not what this is about. Like, that's not what this passage, <laughs> it's yeah. just saying what time of day it was. And I wanted to be like, but it's both like, yes, it's literally, you know, the third hour of the day, but he's also trying to communicate what's happening in Christ's coming, which is something new is happening in the history of salvation. Um, but then, then he's taking the step of also speaking to his audience. So he, it's a rhetorical move. Uh, he's speaking to his audience saying, Hey, and Christ is coming to you the catechumens, you know, he's coming to you in this time. And so just trying to bring some kind of consistency to uh, his, his methodology in a way that we can say, Oh, actually, yeah, Augustine was onto something here that we've, we've missed, but whether it's achieved that or not, I think people will determine for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I did have my question about the use of rhetorical historical as the phrase for it. I think that was, I was sure, like, sure. That's quite yep. the right phrase. The other two sure. made sense to me uh, yep. that one, but anyway, that, that doesn't matter. It's not that big yeah. Uh, I I appreciated what you're trying to do because that's also, I mean, that's a little bit, anybody who, who goes after Augustine's sermons is trying to say, look, it it doesn't, you know, if, if I'm sure if I listen to you preach, I haven't yet. Um, but I'm sure if I listen to you preach, I would, you know, you would preach very differently from Augustine and, and we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sense of what he is doing? Um, because you know, he wouldn't have been like there wouldn't have been the need for for the notari to write down his sermons right. 
as he preached them, and they wouldn't have been sent around the empire and then literally around the Europe, around the world after he died if they didn't have some influence and impact. <laughs> um, but it's just it's it's on the historian to figure out okay why how True. Um, and um, and so anyway so that's part yeah and that too is a little bit of what. Um, I was after like, okay, how can I make sense of what this guy was up to who clearly had, you know, the greatest impact on um, Western Christianity of mm. any theologian. Um, and I think, and I think one, maybe even if it's possible, um, one underestimated element was he had a great impact even on those, in, like on those people who weren't intellectuals. Right. Um, and so like, uh, you know, we don't, you know, we think about him as the author of, of the city of God and the confessions, uh, but he spent most of his time time um preaching to fishermen and farmers yeah um, and in in a you know far-flung corner of of rural north africa mm-hmm. um and it's you know it's a straight like it's this strange thing that nobody seems to reconcile i mean there's mm-hmm. you know tons of biographies of augustine and sometimes they laud him for it and sometimes they castigate him for it but they're like what what is he doing <laughs> um, and why in the world does he yeah. go to hippo and maybe occasionally carthage um, or actually kind of frequently to Carthage, but, um, but, but basically he doesn't, he doesn't ever go back to Italy. He doesn't go anywhere else to Greece. He doesn't travel. Like, um, he just stays there. Yeah. And that was one of the things, man, that I'm just, I continue to be in awe of. And, but it also gives me solace is like, yeah, he was writing a lot of this incredible stuff, but he was still dealing with the day-to-day affairs of being a pastor and the the challenges that come with that, which is just makes it all the more impressive who he was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I will, uh, I'll, I'll stop talking about Bart there. I mean, or I mean, uh, Augustine there. So, um, I mean, I've had a great time chatting with you. Um, I don't know if there was anything else from, from the questions that you really wanted to address, uh, or if, uh, if you just want to call it, call it a day there, I, I really appreciate your time and. Yeah, no, um, you know, I really appreciated one of the questions that you had asked was, you know, just understanding the task of a theologian and, mm-hmm. and a pastor in the midst of some of just the world we're living in right now with COVID and um, Black Lives Matter and the protests. And um, it's a great question. And I think it's a really important question that I think all of us need to be asking, whether we're academics or, or pastors, is, is what's my place in this? Why has God positioned me where I am in this moment? And it, it's certainly been challenging, you know, of figuring out how do I shepherd people who are in search diverse places on these issues and feel very differently and um, have very different priorities even in what's guiding their thinking. And I think for me, what I've, I've found and what I've tried to do is, um, is to be someone who is constantly returning my people back to Christian and biblical categories for thinking through these things, you know? And so one of the conversations that I've had with my community a lot, uh, whether it was during, you know, disagreements over COVID and do we have the right to gather and are our rights being taken away? Um, or now when we're divided over, um, are you for the police or are you for black people in our country? And, saying, no, you know, our allegiance is to Jesus above everything else. Like that's where we begin. That's where we start. That's where we have to take our orders from and take our direction from. And so constantly putting ourselves through that filter of, okay, where is my highest loyalty right now in this moment? And if it's to anything besides Jesus, 
maybe I need to rethink some things. And so um, I just really appreciated you asking that question and wanted to acknowledge that that's something that I'm wrestling with and trying to figure it out. But I know that you mentioned a lot of your listeners are, are pastors and, and seminarians. And, and I think we've just got to be people that that think through these kinds of tough questions and aren't afraid to engage in them. One of the things that I've told our community, our church is called Bright City Church. And I said, you know, if we're going to really claim to be a bright city and to be able to say that with integrity means we've got to be people that are shining a light that people actually see and that people actually feel and experience. And so that means we've got to step into these hard topics, um, but always be pointing to our ultimate allegiances to Jesus. And so that's going to look different in each of our contexts. But I just I wanted to speak to that because I appreciate you asking the question. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. And like I said, I think I, I sort of didn't exactly ask it because we'd kind of run a little long. But also, you know, I just read something this morning from Alan Jacobs, who was responding to some stuff that's gone on in the, the Twitterverse. Um, yeah. but, but it was sort of this idea that that even like even speaking to these issues, you know, can is, is a difficult thing. Um, sure. And and so which is to say, like, you know, if you want to get a job or you're worried about getting a job or, you know, I mean, like there's you can't or you can be dragged on Twitter or, you mm. know, like a tweet that you sent from 10 years ago might make it difficult <laughs> to get a job or, you know, yeah. so anyway, like it's it's such a you know, we we tend I mean, on the podcast, I don't try to make it overly like um, divisive. Um, I, you know, we have listeners who come across from across the um, sort of Christian spectrum. I get emails from um, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic and mm-hmm. pre- predominantly Protestant, but occasionally from others. So anyway, point being, uh, I didn't necessarily want to make it a- about that, but I, it is an important thing that we can't ignore. And so, yeah. you know, I think um, I appreciate you, uh, you, you being willing to speak to that. And that's uh, that's very helpful. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you inviting me on, man. I've so enjoyed this conversation. would love to continue it some more and, and look forward to reading your stuff when, when, it, when it all gets done and comes out. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, that, that's my next my next task is preparing it for publication. So um, absolutely, we'll see if, uh, if anybody wants to pick it up. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Ike. And, and thank you for writing it. And uh, I like I said, I learned a lot and uh, it was uh, it was good chatting with you. Good chatting with you too. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to a History of Christian Theology. Again, I would remind you, please become a patron. Uh, find our Patreon link, which will be up with this episode. Um, and uh, please support us. And that way uh, we can keep offering these free of charge and the full back catalog uh, to, to, to people. Um, and uh, it, it'll help me uh, be able to get more content to you. So thank you for listening. Um, hope you enjoyed this conversation. And uh, we'll see you. Hopefully you'll hear from us uh, in the next week or two. Thanks. Bye.